So I was introduced to the Bible at a very young age, as far back as I can remember. A church in the Bible was a part of my life. And I have always, even as I was uh, sort of wandering away from the faith, even, those, even in those times where I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really living right, I, I've always enjoyed the Bible because the Bible is just utterly bizarre. And I think sometimes we, we forget, we, we tame the Bible down a little bit and, and make it easier and more palatable for us. Uh, and one of the things I love most about the Bible um, is, is reading it to kids. When I was a youth minister, I was a youth minister in this, uh, one of the youth ministries I had was a small church, and so I had all of the kids with me uh, for Sunday night, for the Sunday night service, for the Sunday night youth service. And so this ran from kids who were, she might, uh, Maylee might have been, what, seven, something like that. She's old enough to read, all the way up to like 16, 17, kind of a smattering through there. And uh, I had trouble, of course, talking to that large of an age difference, if you can imagine teaching the Bible to that. And so I would often have little Maylee, who was able to read, read. And we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody know the fruit of the Spirit? If you're new to church, it's okay. If that's a no, that's all right. But there's this passage, it's this beautiful passage. There's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and and gentleness and self-control, these things that God fills us up with. Well, before we get to all that good stuff, there's what we call a vice list. All of the things that you ought not to do. And like a good, like we need to read the whole Bible guy like I am, I had mainly begin at the beginning of the passage. So she begins to read about, you know, why you shouldn't be, you know, angry or have envy or drunkenness or orgies. And she stopped. And she looked at me. And she said, what's an orgy? <laughs> and I began to gently explain, no, I didn't. <laughs> I said, <laughs> the teenagers are snickering, and I'm like, uh, Bible, you did it again, you know? And you just snuck up on me, and <laughs> so I said, ask your parents. If you read the Bible to kids, they will, they will grab a hold of the things that are, are really weird and awkward, the things that, that we would just maybe pass right on by, but they, they grab a hold of it. The other night I was reading Deuteronomy, the book that we're, we've been going through, to Emory, and, and we're talking, we're reading through these passages, and there's these sacrifices of animals that are, are being made. And, and my sweet Emory, those of you who know her, she's just not me at all. She's all Laura, gentle in spirit. She doesn't even understand that the hamburger that she ate that evening at Five Guys that tasted so delicious came from that sweet little cow, right? And so, so these idea of sacrificing animals is totally foreign to her. And she's like, and she asked me, she goes, now, why did God want all of these sacrifices? Now, I have an answer for that, but that answer is directed at like a 30-year-old. How do you tell a 7-year-old, explain to a 7-year-old who's never seen an animal die, why God would want sacrifices? So I was trying to, I was stumbling over my words, and I was incoherent, and she at, at one point just kind of patted me gently on the head and said, it's okay, Daddy, and we just we moved on. It's all right. It's okay. So, uh, so with that, with that just terrible <laughs> demonstration of how well I know the scriptures and I'm able to describe it, I kicked the question over to my hetero life mate, Danny, and I said to him, I said, how would you answer Zoe? He's got a little girl, Zoe. I said, how would you answer this question? Why does God want all these sacrifices to Zoe? And he's, and he, he's quiet for a few, a few seconds on, on the messaging app we're using. And he kicks me back this message that, in quotations. He said, uh, God's weird, baby. You'll see soon. 
I was like, that was a better answer. That was a better answer. Because God is, is weird. And I don't mean that pejoratively. If you're, if you're a good, pious Christian, you're like, stop calling that weird. I, I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean to say that when we engage in the scriptures, there's a lot of stuff that seems strange to us. And I just want to embrace that. I just want it to be what it is. I, I love how weird the Bible is. And so that leads to the title of this sermon, uh, which comes from the text we're going to read today. So if you, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to pull it out, and uh, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. It's the exact same Bible I'm using. Feel free to grab that and open up to page uh, 155. And this is, so before you, before you say, Jordan, that's too much, this is a direct quote from the Bible. This is our, our title today, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. There's all kinds of weird stuff to say about that. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Circumcising the foreskin of your heart is our topic. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God, and with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. And so we're going to take this text, verses 12 through 22. We just read the first chunk, and we're going to, and we're going to break it down. There are three, three kind of things I see, and all of them begin with transform. So, because, get it? Transformed? Huh? Transformers? And, it, and that's a cool picture. Isn't that a cool picture? I love it. All right. What's that? Explain it like you're five. Yes, right. Good. I was really interested in this text because this text talks about and is focused on transforming our way of life. You'll notice that. It begins with an important claim. It says what, or maybe put it better, an important question. What does God require of you? Now this is an important, an important line. It actually kind of uh, rattled me a little bit this week because if we read it backwards, if we read it inductively, we would say this. If the question is what does God require of you, we ought to assume that God requires something from us. And I think that's an idea that gets lost. I have wider culture maybe it, it too, but also within, within the church itself because we have such a huge embrace and rightly so on the grace of God, on the love of God, on the forgiveness of God. And yet when we start talking about the requirements of God, y'all get squirrely, right? What are the requirements that God wants from you? When's the last time you thought about that question? Am I living out the requirements that God has laid on me because God still has requirements. He still has things that he tells us to do and things that he commands us not to do. He has a a way of life that he has set before us and he expects us to to, to live that way. One of the verses that um, brings this out is Micah 6, 8. This is a famous, famous verse, and it's a verse that my liberal Christian friends love. This is, like their, this is like their core verse. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? 
to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I mean, that is a great summary sentence. Makes it into blog titles and memes. I see them all the time. Love justice, love mercy, walk humbly before God. And these are, these are good. These are good and true. But I don't want you to miss what Deuteronomy 10, 12 told us immediately after. What does the Lord require of you? The first thing is what? Fear. Fear the Lord your God. That too is a foreign concept to us. We, we don't really know what to do with this. What do we mean by fear the Lord? It means this, that when you come before God, you do not come before a tame lion. When you come before God, you do not come before your buddy, your bro, your bra, or your bra. None of those apply to God. When you come before God, you come before someone who is described as loving, patient, kind, your father, your friend, one who walks beside you, but even with those metaphors that we, we use to try to describe this God who is beyond anything we can conceive or imagine, to try to get at the mercy and love God has shown us, God is still holy. God is still good. God is still Lord. And he has requirements from us. He has a way for us to walk and a way for us not to walk. You remember Jesus famously put it like this. There are two roads, one that is straight and narrow and one that is broad and easy. And of course, the broad and easy road is the one we all prefer. Can I get a witness, right? But the road that is narrow is the one that leads to what? Life, life. From beginning to end, the consistency of scripture is demonstrated. From Deuteronomy to Jesus, we see this. This is why Moses tells the people to impress upon their children the ways of God, to talk about it when you're on the road driving, to talk about it when you're sitting down at the dinner table, to talk about it when you lay down at night, to talk about it first thing when you get up in the morning, to bind scripture around your hands and around your head, to, to scrawl it on the doorpost so that when you walk into your house just before you enter, you see the scriptures. And when you leave the house, the last thing you see is the scriptures that always the scriptures are before you, demonstrating, describing, and laying out for you the ways of God so you can walk in them because God's will is that you walk in his way. He doesn't want confusion. He doesn't want you to wonder, what do I do next? He wants you to know him with such intimacy that every situation you end up in, you can say with confidence, I think God would want me to do this and be right. And be right. This is why First John, so going from the very beginning of your Bible to the very end of your Bible, First John, a letter written 1,000, 1,800 years after this, says that the, the commands of God are not burdensome to us because everyone who has been born of God, everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world. Again, demonstrating that there are two ways of life that are laid before you and God is desperate that you would walk in the way of life that is in keeping with his way of life. Now this is not a God who commands from far away. This isn't like we get a, you know, you get a ruling from the Supreme Court and they 
This is now the law of the land. And you might love the law, you might hate the law, but you're not expected to love the judge, right? The Supreme Court judges don't care if you love them or hate them. They're just doing their job. This is not the kind of lawgiver we have, but rather a God who wants to walk intimately with his people. I often go back to the story uh, in, in, in Genesis, the very first story after creation, and it says that God is going for a walk in the cool of the day and calling out to Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, from there, we immediately jump into the story of sin and fall and, and all of the consequences, negative consequences of our sin. But let's pause for a second and recognize that God was taking a walk in the garden, looking to walk with Adam and Eve. That the God who reveals his ways to you are not just because he is the king of the universe and he wants his, his, his world to be a just and merciful world, but because God wants to walk next to you. If you're walking his way, with his ways, then he can walk with you. That's what God wants. And that's what the scripture describe a God who, who loves his people and wants to be in the midst of them. And so law, as we see it, is connected and brought together with love, just as we see in Jesus. Commands and love, commands and love. Look at verse 14. So let's move on to the next transformed wants. So God looks for us to transform our ways, as we saw in verse 13, for our good. And verses 14 through 16, he talks about transforming our desires, transforming the things we want. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. Some of you might have highest heavens. The earth and all that is in it And yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And I felt like you needed a Decepticon for for, uh, circumcision. Because... The story of circumcision comes from, the, the first story of circumcision, I'm sure there's many stories, but the first story of circumcision uh, go, comes from uh, Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis chapter 17, God comes to ratify a covenant with Moses. He has spoken to Moses earlier in chapter 12, and he's spoken again in chapter 15, and he's alluded to Moses to say, listen, I am going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And he's, he sort of led him along, but now is this moment where things are going to change completely. In fact, up to this point, Abraham's name, as we call him, was Abram. And it is in this moment that God transforms his name from Abram to Abraham. So father to the father of many, because he will have many sons and, and the people will come from him. And from this point, uh, the, the mark of the covenant or the sign of the covenant ends up being circumcision. Now, uh, I don't know how many of you are 99 years old, but if I suggested that at 99 you get circumcised, you might think it was not a great idea. <laughs> it's okay to laugh, guys. Like, this is... This is funny, weird stuff. Like, imagine Abraham at 99, and God comes to him and says, it's time for you to be circumcised. And he says, what? Like, this is, this is strange stuff here. 
strange stuff here. In fact, it's unique stuff here. It's something that no one else is doing, which again is why it is so strange. And if you're new here as, and you're not a Christian, then all of your thoughts are our thoughts as well. We're just pious church people. And we can't laugh about it. Circumcision is costly. I don't need to explain that. It's painful. I don't really need to explain that either. It is a mark that will be remembered by Abraham. It's something that is in his flesh, and and several times a day, anyway, he will see it, right? And he will remember, I am covenanted with God. And everyone around him, all of the people, because, again, remember, part part of our mindset is that we forget that Abraham and his, and his offspring, Israel, in the time of Deuteronomy, they, they're surrounded by all kinds of other nations. All kinds of, they've got their own Canada, right, that they make fun of in their videos. They've, that's what they've got. And the Canadians who are around them are like, you're doing what? To, to what? Right? I mean, this is, this is stuff that's like, but it sets them apart. And it is unforgettable. God marks in the flesh something that is unforgettable. And, and we don't really have that concept. We don't really have that, that way of thinking. I, as an excited 19-year-old, headed off to college, headed into ministry. Uh, the, the first thing I, the second thing I did uh, when I got to college was get a tattoo of a cross on my back, which, of course, made my parents very proud because I wanted to carry my cross, and I never wanted anyone to be able to take it away from me. Now, I'm not suggesting you get a tattoo. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what I did. And that was my thinking. Like, I, I, and, and I think one of the things that we often don't put into our minds or put into our lives are, how am I signifying to myself? What am I putting in front of me that lets me remember every day I am not the same as the people I meet? I mean, Israel was not the same. They were different. Not only circumcision, which is, of course, strange in its own way, but there's all kinds of laws that we'll get into in, a, in several weeks. Uh, tassels on their, like four tassels on their cloak and, and, not, and not having the, uh, mixed fabrics and how they plowed. All kinds of things that you're like, what does that even, what does that have to do with anything? It has nothing to do with anything except for this. Every time they did anything, they remembered, we belong to God. We belong to God. Which gets at the whole idea of transformed wants, because what is God after here? God is not just after people who will do what he says. Cold, rule-keeping is not what God is after. God is after what we want. That's the use of the word heart here. The word heart in our language, is the way we use it often means emotion, but, but it means so much more than that in the context of Scripture. It has to do with the desires and the decisions that we make. God wants to change your desires so that your decisions become more and more in line with his decisions. So that our knee-jerk reactions begin to take a shape that looks like God's knee-jerk reaction. So then when somebody is cruel or mean to you at work, do you respond with cruel, mean words? Because my reaction is to do what? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And yet Jesus says what? Turn the other cheek. This is a hard word if you've been slapped. 
It's easy to talk about in church when everybody's sitting quietly and piously and you've got your Bibles in your lap. When we go out there, that's a hard thing to live. And if you want to live it out there, you are going to have to put stuff in front of your face all the time that reminds you, I am not like others. I belong to God. I am not like others. I belong to God. And if you want your kids, if you want your little ones to become Christians as well, then you had better have in front of them constantly, more often than yourselves, I belong to God, I am not like others. We ask this question, why are you leaving the church? They're leaving the church because you haven't put in front of them, I belong to God, I am not like others. We have said, we're kind of like everybody else, but we're a little bit different. No, you're circumcised. And everyone around you is like, you did what? Because you've transformed not only your way of life, but what you want out of life. And if Christians do not want something different, want something different out of life, then the people around us, then we aren't different. We aren't different. When he talks about circumcising the heart, obviously that is not possible. He is drawing them to see the way in which they have scarred their bodies in discipline and willful submission to God, and they're saying, scar your will. Scar your wants. Scar your desires so that you can walk next to me. So you can be like me. And that is ultimately what God is after. God wants us to be like him. He wants to show us his example. And I want to look at those, verses 17 through 22. Take a peek at that. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. There's a lot of imperatives, isn't it? Just in case you forgot, I am Lord of as far as you can imagine and as deep as you can go. I am God over all of it. And this is the first thing he says. I take no bribes. I am not partial. I'd love to hear a politician say that, right? I mean, we, we, we all laugh about this. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else in this room. We're all pretty well aware that your interests are not their interests. But God cannot be bribed. He can't be bought off. His justice is complete and total. And his justice is applied to who? Look at the next verses. He executes justice For the fatherless and the widow. The God of gods, the God who is is God over as far as you can imagine into space, as far as Hubble has taken us to as deep as we can drill. God is God of all of those things. And that God's first concern was this. The orphan and the widow and the sojourner. The people who no one else is caring about. The people who are the weakest and in need of help. What's interesting is what he says about the sojourner next. Notice that. The sojourner giving him food and clothing. It's fascinating. How is God going to give the sojourner food and clothing? Like, is he calling the delivery guy? Is... I mean, Uber drives everything. Do they pick up clothes for you? No, I don't, I don't know. 
How is God going to provide this for them? There's nothing, there's no description there. It just says God provides that. And then notice verse 19. Love the sojourner, therefore, for why? You were a sojourner in the land of Egypt. When you were in Egypt, you guys all know the story. Even if you're not a Christian, maybe you've seen Charlton Heston. He's my guy. I talk about him all the time. Moses, right? You guys stand like crazy straight. Moses, right? When they were in Egypt, what did the Egyptians do? Enslaved them, right? That's what happened. When you were a sojourner, they oppressed you with bitter and hard bondage. That's what happened when you were in Egypt. What happens when the Egyptian is now in your power? What happens then? Because what's the temptation? If you have the chance to get back at somebody, what do you do? What's so interesting here is, what does it say in verse 18? God loves the sojourner, and he provides the sojourner food and clothing. Of course, question we just asked, how does that happen? Then in verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. What is the commonality? Love. What should love produce? How do you think God is going to provide food and clothing to the sojourner? Now, God doesn't have to say that, does he? He doesn't write it down. He doesn't say, and I'm saying, you idiots, provide the food and clothing. He says, I love them, and I provide food and clothing for them. You love them, so you... See, it's so easy. In here. When we're sitting in our nice clothes with our Bibles in front of us, making plans about where we're going to go out to lunch afterwards. Love has feet and hands, or it is not love. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he said what? Take up your cross and follow me, which means what? You die for others who have sinned against you. This is a hard word. It might remind us then why Jesus talks about a narrow road versus a broad road. Because I am barely good enough to die for my family, let alone someone whose guts I hate. And yet if I would walk in God's ways, what must I do? Be willing. God is great and good because only a great and good God could express such great and good love. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God, again reminding us. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve him and you shall hold fast to him and by his name shall you swear for he is your praise he is your god who has done for you these great and terrifying things done all these things before your eyes do not forget who god is do not forget who you are and whatever it takes you to transform your wants to circumcise the foreskin of your heart Whatever it takes to do that, if it means that when you go home, you get out a Sharpie and you start writing on your door frame, I love it. I might do that. Laura might stop me. 
whatever it takes you to put that in front of your face at all times so that you do not forget that you are not the same, that you are different because you belong to God. Whatever that takes, pursue that. I wanted to close from a passage here from the New Testament, a passage that I think is lovely because it describes to us the high calling to which we have been called. That if we are truly going to transform our ways, if we're truly going to transform our wants, if we're truly going to live the example that God has given us, not only has God given us example of his mercy and might and benevolence in Deuteronomy as we've been working through this text, but we see even more so in Jesus. And we are to live forward that, that vision. So hear this, those of you who have ears to hear, and put this into practice. Put in, on then as God's chosen ones, holy and loved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another one, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these things as great and high and difficult as they are put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one church body and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and, and serenading one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And whatever you do this week as you leave this place, whether in word or in deed, I exhort you to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let's stand and sing praises to our God and King.